Inside Ringot podcast looking at the federal election from the perspective of the Northern Beaches in this episode. Hello, my name is Stephen Tripp. I'm the One Nation candidate for the federal seat of Warringah. G'day, my name is Andrew Robertson and I'm the United Australia Party candidate for the federal electorate of Warringah. I should say we still try to reach out to Catherine Deeds, the Liberal Party candidate for Warringah. However, our calls remain unanswered. In this chat, we cover topics from Spitbridge and how that could be a symbol of neglect, to property affordability, foreign ownership laws, and a Bill of Rights to protect all Australians. Fast forward to after Fred election, that's just under three weeks away, and the state of the lower house and the Senate being unknown. Let's see what some conservative minor parties might be looking for in exchange for their support. We start by asking Steve Tripp from One Nation how the pandemic got him become a candidate for One Nation. My, my livelihood was threatened. Um, I lost my job. Uh, during the pandemic and I felt like I had no other option but to stand up for my family and the community and Australia more broadly as well so that's why I'm here um now I'm in this fight for Warringah and I the thing that's really disappointed me in this whole campaign is that Warringah is really not being focused on that the focus is on Zali Stegel and um, Catherine Deves and they kind of like have one trick policies like they they only have like their small platforms and it's not really while they might be talking about important issues for, for people, it's not really targeted on Moringa. Like we're not talking about congestion, for example. We are so neglected when it comes to um, congestion and overpopulation and housing affordability. They're not talking about those things, whereas um, I'm really trying to beat the drum and, and hammer that point home that something needs to be done. Look at the spit bridge. That is the symbol of neglect in Raringa. I was, I was talking to someone in Brisbane. I was talking to him about the spit bridge. He's like, what are you talking about? And he's Googling it and I'm d- explaining it to him. He's like, what is this? What What is this? And I'm like, it's a bridge that opens to marine traffic six times a day on weekdays and eight times a day on weekends. Yep. And it's been there since 1958 with no alternative. They've talked about tunnels and bridges and all sorts of things. Nothing gets done. And that's our main thoroughfare from north to south and into the city. Mm-hmm. And when the bridge goes up, emergency vehicles, like I was at Seaforth the other day, the bridge went up, the traffic built up, and next minute you hear sirens. And the yeah. ambulance was held up trying to get through. And, I, I, I you know, I have a, a friend that I speak to that lives at Seaforth, and he's always, like, arguing, I can never get tradesmen from Mossman because they just won't cross the spit bridge. And <laughs> the contra flow is, is hazardous, like, when I go to work, I work night shift. You, you're going down the hill, approach, you know, heading south. Three lanes merge into one. And if you're behind a truck and you're not used to that, you can't see the contraflow ahead. And all of a sudden you have to merge and there's buses there and big trucks and all sorts of things. I'm surprised there's more accidents. Why has nothing been done? I'm really screaming to the, to the because uh, I, I work in construction, so I'm passionate about this, this sort of stuff. Right. Well, I was going to ask what what was that job that you had before the pandemic? That um, yeah. So I'm an engineer surveyor, and uh, I had a very uh, very cushy job on the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and um, it it was you know it was great working there. It's such an you know iconic spot. Yeah. And, uh, I was I was very proud to be there, and uh, I was working night shifts, so the the money was good. It was a great group of guys. I got on well with everyone there. And I'd worked hard to get there, being in construction for 15 years and put in a lot of long hours and uh, a lot of hard work. Uh, I always put my hand up for weekend work and all sorts of things to, um, you know, build up a reputation for myself in the industry mm-hmm. and uh, finally get this perfect job that I, I love. And, and then all of a sudden, 
Um, little Gladys gets on the TV and <laughs> kind of derails everything. So um, Gladys so. derailed it. Okay, clocked that. Um, Andrew, apart from your glorious mustache, tell us um, <laughs> tell us a bit about you and and where the campaign's headed for you. So I'm a 31 year old lawyer. I live in Brookvale. I grew up in St Ives, which is in the North Shore of Sydney, and then moved to Manly. I think in 2013. I guess over the last probably actually a bit longer, I'd say two to five years, I've seen, I think, Australia's government start taking us in a very different direction. And um, I study at university still. I'm doing what's called a Master's of Jurisprudence, which um, effectively is like legal theory. And I've been looking in depth at freedom of speech and theories on freedom of political communication and how important it is for democracy. And what I saw pretty much from the end of 2019 to date uh, in respect of the erosion of freedom of speech, uh, the inability for people to communicate a dissenting opinion from the government without fear of sanction, potentially imprisonment, depending in which jurisdiction you were during the last three years. I've just seen it erode completely to the point where I am not confident that there is uh, really freedom of thought, let alone freedom of speech in this country. And that was kind of the starting point for me. I got to the point where I was contemplating very seriously leaving the country with my wife. Um, I'm a Christian. I've done you know, mission work around the world and I've done work in East Africa. And I really thought that's an amazing place to go. I mean, they're a long way behind us and in terms of the surveillance capability of their government. You can talk freely. You can, you can express your opinion without fear of losing one's job. You don't need to take part in certain experiments. There's not the level of control over there. And I thought that would be nice. But, you know, the more I thought and prayed about the situation in Australia, I thought if it's not someone like me who can stand up and speak for people who don't have a voice, uh, then I, I feared really for, for the people that would actually rise into those positions. A lot of people go into politics for power. A lot of people go in for, for glory or for prestige. But quite honestly, I just want to see Australians uh, and their freedoms protected from government overreach. And that's where I've uh, found a bit of a home with the United Australia Party. And as a platform, you know, we stand for a Bill of Rights. So that would encompass, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of political thought, freedom of association, freedom of the practice of one's religion. And, um, and I think these things we used to believe were protected, you know, as common law rights you know they were rights that were um, personal to an individual some would say they were inalienable around the world and certainly america that's what they talk about yep. Yep. but here i think uh, we saw under one section of the public health act uh, the complete reversal really that the the, uh, the onus was really on us to prove that we could congregate or that we had an opinion that was worth sharing and wasn't dangerous and the rise of fact checking and um, just bureaucracy to decide what is a position that should be followed in, in areas of public health and safety and areas that should be completely banned. And, you know, as a lawyer, I probably saw 30 to 40 people uh, professionally who had lost their jobs uh, as a result of public health acts or these public health orders. And um, in our church congregation, I'd say between 70 or 80%, at least one or two breadwinners in a family lost their jobs. And we haven't got much money to provide for people. They weren't eligible for Centrelink because effectively they were you know, made redundant because they were no longer safe to have on, on site or whatever. And I saw, you know, doctors, I saw dentists, I've seen nurses, teachers, um, after school care workers, every single, uh, pretty much every single facet of society has been decimated to the point where we had the army in nursing homes and we had student teachers teaching classes. And Scott Morrison was suggesting that 16 year olds can be driving forklifts. And then they'd be telling us with the same breath that we're at record low unemployment and not even factoring in the tens of thousands of people who were structurally unemployed uh, and just the needless suffering and cruelty that I saw, I just couldn't mm. believe it. It's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, 
as a, a church boy Christian as well, um, I'm intrigued. Uh, the kind of normal path would be Christian Democrat Party. Um, is there ever any decision or what helped you make that kind of decision? I think for me, as um, Stephen mentioned, like I wasn't a particularly political individual. I think that um, I've always been conservative in my points. I'm, I'm, I'd probably be called what's called like a classic libertarian. Like I hold to mm-hmm. the Austrian school of economics largely that, you know, the economy is uh, made up of just so many decision makers that, you know, have um, so, ma- so many um, different decisions they can make to affect price and allocation of resources. And I've always been against government intervention due to the bubbles that it invariably creates government involvement uh, in, in, and intervention, in my opinion, nearly always has these unforeseeable negative kind of externalities. And I feel like a lot of Christian parties throughout history have tried to marry kind of their faith and political power in a way that um, seeks to kind of normalize Christian morality in society. I'm not 100% sure that that's the best way for a Christian to act. Certainly from an economic standpoint, will actually result in a lot more liberty. It would result in a lot more human freedom, less human suffering uh, than it would if you were trying to go down that kind of Christian sledgehammer approach into politics. So I'm not saying that (laughs) anyone that's done that before has been wrong at all. Um, yeah. Because I really do believe that uh, historically they've had a really important platform to speak against some of the social um, norms that have crept in. Uh, but I don't think, for me, I'm not running on a Christian platform. I just happen to be a Christian. And yeah. I felt uh, very, very comfortable running with the United Australia Party. And um, I think that's been unusual for a lot of Christians because typically they've kind of you know, gravitated towards conservatives. But uh, if Stephen mentioned before some of Gladys's policies, uh, I think um, the inconsistency around life for me was a big one. Like the government were telling us that, you know, we had to protect the elderly during this pandemic, which is admirable. Uh, but they were also ushering in voluntary euthanasia and abortion. So I just felt like there were these um, multiple approaches to the sanctity of life that I found were inconsistent. And I, I like logic. I really like it. And to me, if life is important, it should be protected. And I understand that there are always differences in people's opinion as to you know end of life care and also the viability of of, of a person's survival um, if they are extremely um you know there are babies that aren't going to live you know and that that is a reality but for me it was the carte blanche approach to it and i felt just the um they really i think left a lot of their base behind with the liberal party decision making particularly at a state level and i think that because there is this kind of genuine duopoly at state level uh, even from a Christian point of view, typically, even though the, the um, Christian Democrats have, you know, they've had a big part in state politics historically, I feel like the Liberal Party federally are going to reap what the uh, state party have sown in some respects. Yeah, it's it's interesting. That's that's one of the discussions that happens uh, both in our chamber and uh, more broadly in the community because your average Joe doesn't really see a, a difference between... They can tell that the council's different, but even with that, they can't tell what the council, the state and what federal are responsible for. So whoever's in front of them, they just start yelling. A lot of the issues that are playing out for this federal election are actually local issues, which, again, Stephen, back to your point, you um, it, you know, it's it's the spit bridge, which it's also funny because the other, some parts of the community actually like the fact that it's hard to get in and out, right? Areas of like Balgala, Seaforth, uh, Manly Vale, DY, like... If you work in the city, it's it's how how do you get into work every day? Like I, I've heard like nightmare stories about having to drive here, park there, catch the bus, you know, try and get to the ferry. You know, we need other options. Uh, there's no plan apart from the beaches link, and that's just been deferred mm. to 
to alleviate that congestion. And it's our only thoroughfare. If you want to go into the city, that's really the only route. And the other thing that is a big issue for Ringer as well is housing affordability. Just going crazy, like, uh, you know, my wife and I uh, purchased last year uh, around August and another unit in our complex sold recently for half a million dollars more than what we pay in less than a year. And all the units are quite similar. We even think ours is, is, you know, in a better position. How are young families meant to keep up with that? And uh, one of the policies that One Nation is putting forward is um, restricting foreign ownership of residential property because, you know, for better or worse, people in, in other countries, they want to get their money out of that country for whatever reason. So instead of coming in to Australia and buying one unit, they'll buy a whole floor. I know they were at the um, entertainment centre, the old entertainment centre at Haymarket, when they ripped that down, they built four blocks of high-rise. One of them was 40 storeys. It sold out in five minutes because investors from overseas were coming in and saying, I want that whole floor. Right. And then they don't even bother leasing them out. So it's a supply and demand issue. The demand is high, but the supply can't keep up because we have these foreign investors coming in, purchasing our residential property, not leasing it out. So it's not available to the public. So the supply just can't keep up. So housing prices keep going higher and higher. Foreign investment doesn't matter. Like they, they just, their, their goal is get the money out of the country so the government doesn't take it off them or whatever reason. Like there's yeah. many reasons. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't think you can say it's isolated anywhere. It's a broad problem in Sydney yep. and Australia more generally. What's interesting to me is that both of you, coming from different parties, both got sparked into politics by the same thing, right? around, around the issue of what happened during uh, the pandemic. Practically, uh, what do we see if, if you're in the seat? So I think the Bill of Rights is one of the things that as a party we're pushing, and I think a lot of people there's a lot of, I would say, general approbation for it. Like people generally approve of it. I think just because of the potential for abuse by government. Um, if people aren't aware, Section 7 of the Health Act just had the word, if it was reasonable in the mind of the minister, you could do X and Y. And, you know, almost without any warning, uh, that was just repealed. You know, all the public health orders made under that reasonable section uh, have been repealed. So I think for me, there has to be more of a bolstering of the human rights of Australian citizens as opposed to the reasonable opinion of a, of a minister to bring the entire economy to its knees. So the Bill of Rights, I think, has, has a large, uh, I would say, broad level of approval nationally, it seems to be, from our polling, that it's a big deal. And I think to bring it into effect, uh, it actually has to be done by way of a referendum. So more or less, mm. I think, in order to entrench it firmly in the Australian uh, constitutional system, I think it has to be done by way of a memorandum, uh, a referendum. It wouldn't be like a normal legislative act. So that's one part of it. But ultimately, a lot of uh, the United Australia Party's policies aren't just dealing with personal freedom in the sense of bodily autonomy and right to you know, decide who you hang out with, who you trade with, and when you open your business, et cetera. Uh, freedom to you know, make decisions in respect of where you live, uh, and it's not going to affect you. So, I mean, a big part of, um, we were talking before about congestion, and, and something that our party has um, brought to the table is this idea of zonal taxation, which is to bring an, an incentive from a tax point of view for individuals to move to remote areas. Uh, and that would do a number of things, but not least of which is to actually, uh, I think, bring a lot of new industry to some of our regional and remote areas and hopefully actually lead to this new uh, quality of life that Australians can actually enjoy nationally. Um, so we you know, understand that would take a lot of pressure off a lot of the urban centres. Um, and I think it's going to be extremely popular. For example, um, for the purpose of the policy, my understanding is that Hobart is not being treated as a capital city. So the entirety of Tasmania would effectively be enjoying a, 
I think it's a 20% uh, highest marginal rate of income tax for the whole state. So that's quite an incredible offer for people to take pressure off some of our infrastructure in our big cities. But it's 200 k's from a major city. So you can actually be from a capital city effectively. So you can be in Western New South Wales if there's somewhere you'd rather be. Um, I, I think there's a few places I contemplate. Um, but I think a lot of that is to actually increase, you know, Australians' ability to have an affordable life. Inflation at the moment, it was something 5.1% or something this morning. In my opinion, like if we were using a 1980s basket of goods, I suspect inflation would be a lot higher than that. I mean, Stephen before touched on uh, the the actual increase in housing prices on the North, northern beaches. I mean, I think mm. in, uh, was it between October 2020 to April 2021, it was something like 40% in Brookvale, which is insane. I mean, real growth, like real growth in our domestic product is nothing like that. If it's even positive, I would be very surprised, depending again on what kind of metrics you look at. There is almost no real growth in wages. And I think uh, to say that we're having this booming housing market is actually very indicative of a serious problem in society. Uh, which has kind of been the cheap supply of money. Uh, and what, ha- what it has set up, I think, or this irresponsible lending is probably the biggest bubble in housing market history in Australia. And I think that any, almost any uh, increases in our cash rate is going to bring the whole thing crumbling down. So a lot of what our policies are geared towards are ensuring that homeowners, so owner-occupied people that are paying mortgage, aren't going to lose their house if interest rates double. And the other thing I think that's very important is that what we're trying to do is to make the first $30,000 towards mortgage repayments for a home, an owner-occupier for a home loan is going to be tax deductible. So it's going to be just alleviating a lot of the stress and pressure already. And I think like it's been, I've been lucky in some respects in that I fit almost perfectly into the Australian mean in respect of my debt. And uh, I am someone that can honestly say that if interest rates double, I will be under mortgage stress. And that is uh, really motivating me. And I think that as a party, we genuinely have policies that people can latch onto and say, look, there is some hope here that I'm not going to lose my house. I'm not going to be, you know, forced to rent forever in the, for the rest of my life. So another thing that we've done is that we've um, tabled the idea of paying or just alleviating or wiping or waiving hex debts that are currently in existence and for Australian citizens making certain university courses uh, free. So I don't know if people know, your listeners, that if you've got a hex debt, which I, I have a significant one, so does my wife, because we studied and did masters and all kinds of stuff. And I don't know that masters will be covered in their policy. So that'll all be made public shortly. But I'm just saying, you know, for undergraduate degrees, et cetera, uh, those debts are taken as real debts for the purpose of your borrowing. So if you've got, say, between my wife and I, we had $70,000 worth of hex, that came off the, um, the bottom line of what we could borrow. So yep. it meant that, I mean, to live on the Northern beaches were practically impossible for us. And then finally, I think the people... Uh, Australia need to have a government that's taking our debt seriously. Uh, we have gone from in 2007, zero debt effectively, to now having over $1.2 trillion of federal debt. And a lot of people aren't aware that debt at levels like this on a government basis typically act in an exponential fashion. And people start looking at their tax returns and having a look at that other category down the bottom. It's the embarrassing one that governments don't want to tell you where your money's actually going. That is going off to paying federal national debt. It is, it, it is unbelievable that we're in this position, we're running into an election, Labor, Liberals, Greens, and our independent in Warringah, none of them have talked about the debt. I have no idea how possibly we're going to pay off our national debt with, these, with, with our, the economic metrics that we're seeing. So as a party, we're talking about having a 15% export license on iron ore, and we have an amazing competitive advantage in the world. And a lot of nearly all, something like 80 to 85% of Asian manufacturing, which is the manufacturing hub of the world, is reliant on Australian iron ore. We really do have a very unique opportunity to put in place an export license on, on a commodity like iron ore, where they can't shop around really. Uh, they're very limited in their, in their um, actual markets for it. It's not like coal or something, and they could just go to Indonesia or something like that. 
Um, and then that what we've found is that over 20 years, if we're actually quarantining that as a separate entry in our national balance sheet, we would be able to pay off our nation's debt. Uh, and that gives us all of our taxation revenue to put into other areas like hospital and education. So I hope that our policies will alleviate some of our housing problems and shortages in terms of encouraging zonal um, movement. At the moment, I'm, I find that unless you've got an inheritance or your parents are willing to stump up for you, it's almost impossible for 30-somethings like me to get into the property market. I do not have a single friend that has actually saved enough money off their own back. They might not tell you this originally, but I can guarantee you uh, they have taken money from their parents, which is not a crime. It's tough. I mean, we can't get in. I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember, and I'm not old, but I remember when I'd have families that had like a five-bedroom house with one adult that was working, you know, they'd have a stay-at-home parent and they'd have kids at private schools. It is so unfathomable now to not have two parents working, to live in a shoebox, you know, in, in some kind of you know, industrial area and something's gone yeah. wrong. So, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, housing affordability is such an interesting thing because I, I feel that all the different different ways that we've been finding that we can solve the problem um, lead to increasing the price of um, a house, essentially, as someone to live. So I know Jason Falinski has an idea where you're able to use your own superannuation to help you to, to buy a property. So all these different ways are used to just basically to increase the price of a property, but there's not sort of a, a way that we're able to put a cap on how how much that the um, a house price can increase. I think just on that, I mean, people I think have such a pedestrian understanding on inflation typically. Mm. I mean, money has been printed, literally created, and we have an enormously swollen pool of money that's chasing mm. finite resources. And you are always going to have an increase in price. That's really what inflation is at its simplest. So as long as governments are printing money, we are always going to have an increase in, have in your under asset. Yeah. And what, what has happened, I think, in this kind of Keynesian approach to economics is that they're not allowing corrections in the market. They want to keep the kind of gravy train going. Uh, and, I mean, you just look at just from, again, we're, we're separating federal from state here. But transfer duty, which is a form of stamp duty revenue, is so appealing to governments that really they, they want properties to be sold and they want them to be fetching these amazing house, uh, prices because of look at what they're taking in on it. So yep. often it's hard because prices will continue to go up. Uh, I would say over time, you'll have more uh, exponential growth in housing prices in certain areas. A good one for me is like, I'm a lawyer, I deal with families all the time. If they were buying in Seaforth and say 1960, they were paying like $38,000 cash. And that was only three times more they were earning annually. I mean, that's yep. the thing. It has become so dis disproportionate from our earnings that it is unbelievably, it's impossible practically for someone like me. I would have to work for pr practically 10 years, pay no tax on that money. So I'm talking about 100, like 100 cents in the dollar, me retaining and not spending a single dollar to pay off my house. So there's something wrong there. And it's all in the credit, in my opinion. Once you keep producing credit to avoid recessions uh, and corrections in the market, you're just kicking the can down the road. And what we're about to hit, I think, whatever happens, it's going to be, something that this next government is going to have to deal with, a real adjustment in housing prices. And I think we're going to see potentially uh, people who are looking at having negative equity in their properties. So they had a $200,000 deposit, borrowed 700 grand. So for $900,000 property, and all of a sudden their property is worth 650. And yeah. all of a sudden real, so I don't want to talk too much. Obviously I want Stephen to have a chance. <laughs> no, I was going to, come, I was going to say, to we, the, the question was for, for Stephen and, uh, I, you know, getting a lawyer to pause for a second is awesome. Um, <laughs> but sorry, Andrew. So Stephen, um, you want to hit that question? Uh, I just love how Andrew said that he's still young. But uh, no, he raised a lot of good issues that I would love to um, to discuss. Firstly, back to um, back to the pandemic response. One Nation is the only party in in Parliament that proposed 
legislations and vaccine mandates. Now, I want to stress that we are not anti-vax, we are, but we are fiercely pro-choice. It's everyone's decision to uh, for their health and and you know what medical procedures they um, take on. He also Andrew also raised a bill of rights. And now now I know there's a lot of pushback from people even all the way back to when the Constitution was written against a Bill of Rights in Australia. My view is any form of uh, document or restriction on, on government and that protects our freedoms, I'm in support of. So, um, you know, I've always kind of been in favour of, of a Bill of Rights, but it's something that we're really going to have to have a serious and uh, adult discussion about. It's not something that we can just slap together. I mean, you're going to need as uh, Andrew said, probably a referendum because there needs to be community involvement. You can't just leave it up to bureaucrats and, and government because they'll probably screw it up. Um, Can I ask a kiddie question, though, in, the, in this adult conversation? So what does a Bill of Rights actually do? It's just a clear um, structure of um, uh, strengthening our freedoms and um Andrew's a lawyer, so he could probably explain this a lot better than I could. I'm just you, uh, you can you can tell he's itching to. Yeah, no, that's fine. I want Stephen to go. I mean, I think really it's it's how it's the public's perception of it too that matters. You don't have to be a lawyer to understand it. I hope so. I'll hear Stephen yeah. out, and then if there's something I feel like to, to add, I'll I'll mention it at the end. Yeah, or cool. from a speech, like people are walking on eggshells at the moment because they they're so afraid of speaking out of line. Now, freedom of speech doesn't protect uh, popular speech. It's meant to protect unpopular speech, and then it's up to the community to argue against it. If if someone's out there displaying views that are inappropriate well look unfortunately that's their that's their belief and that's their freedom but it's up to everyone else to argue against it uh once we start silencing people then you're walking down a very dangerous path because you know once you start silencing ideas and who's actually silencing the ideas that's the problem because um they have a kind of um feeling that their their view is is superior to someone else's and look um it's not an easy issue it's certainly not i'm not i'm not it's not a black and white issue but it's the best system that we have and uh freedom freedom of speech those sorts of issues they're so fragile and we learned that during the pandemic about how fragile our freedoms are and how quickly government can take them away from us like they locked us in our homes they closed our businesses they restricted our movements they stopped us from seeing our families um they stopped people from crossing borders we never even contemplated that that could even be a thing. And they were taken away so swiftly. Like if you miss the press conference or miss the nightly news or something like that, suddenly you weren't up to date with all the the new restrictions and the new public health orders and things in place. And that's just not the way uh, it should be in this, especially in this country, because we've had, we've fought hard. We've been so lucky to have our freedoms established in the first place. Like we didn't you have to go through wars like the civil war in America and the, the war of independence and things like that. And that might be a big problem as to why we're a little bit apathetic about these sorts of issues, but we really need to take a, a real hard look and, and see how important they are to our society. And it gives us strength. People come here to this country and we, we are known as the lucky country. Another, another one that um, uh, Andrew brought up was uh, the interest rates. Now, um, this is probably my only point of difference with Andrew. Uh, but my 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 wife and I were ha- were ha- uh, homeowners, and um, you know, obviously, we're paying a big mortgage, living in Moringa. And I should really be down on my hands and knees, kissing the feet of Clive Palmer for this policy of three percent interest rate cap. But one question I have is, if you introduce that, why would banks lend money? 
if it, if they if they're getting a lot of their money from overseas um, sources, why would banks take on the risk of lending money to people with a cap at three percent? Yes, I mean banks are lending at 0.1 percent. Just as we sit here, we're talking about capping it at three percent, and that is what you know the retail rates obviously are higher than the cash rate. But it's variable based on international norms of banking. People don't uh, seem to recall that in every single jurisdiction in the world, there are different interest rates, whether it's in Japan, who've had negative interest rates for a very long time, or you have the Australian situation where we have had really high interest rates, say in 2008, 2009, where it pushed our dollar up to $1.10, say US. It's always happened where there are floating variable rates around the world. It kind of When we passed the Reserve Bank of Australia Act, we effectively, as a country, outsourced our central banking decisions to a new body that was created by us. It was effectively the face of the Bank of International Settlements internationally. And what we did at that point in time was we ceded our right under the constitution, which is, I think off the top of my head section, I think it's 5113 or something like that, where the federal government has the right to absolutely legislate in respect of banking. So when people talk about this, firstly, they think that banks are running at a loss. They're not necessarily at all. Uh, what we're talking about is a different system of banking where effectively the RBA function as a different organ of the government but they would be functioning as a different type of organ in terms of they would be, rather than focusing on inflation as a target, would be focusing on the protection of home ownership as the actual purpose of their existence for the period of five years. So credit can be cheap, it can be expensive depending on where you are in the world. And it would actually, I mean, really, it's a fundamental shift in terms of the RBA's function in Australia. So I think when, uh, as a party, we announced it, people are thinking in this kind of framework of the RBA as we know it as today, but what I think um, Clive has mentioned in his National Press Club address is that he's talking about actually potentially going back prior to the institution of the Reserve Bank of Australia, where we had a bank like the Commonwealth Bank of Australia that was a kind of private public institution that with the government decided what the best interest rate would be for the actual, really, the fruitfulness of our nation generally. So as long as the RBA is independent and doing what they're trying to do at the moment, uh, then we will have the butting of heads like Stephen was alluding to. Uh, but the way we're looking at it as a party is to bringing the RBA's function much more in line with the CBA prior to the Keating reforms. So that's kind of what we're looking at. So it's a bit of a change in the actual structure of central banking in Australia, rather than you know us just saying, look, this is the flat rate and the RBA are like, well, we're not running at a loss. The other thing I want to say in respect of the policy generally is that it is only in relation to home loans. It is only in respect of owner-occupied home loans, which are obviously a huge part of all of the bank's balance sheets, but it is not in respect of credit cards, term deposits, or any other form of loan. I just jump in. And Andrew's right. That is the uh, that is the old system, and he is correct. But uh, it's a different uh, circumstances these these days because our banks get a lot of their money from the internet uh, international countries, you know, China and other countries like that. So if, if their interest rates go up and our rate is cut, capped at three percent, then the banks are going to incur um, a massive cost. The main issue that I want to raise is the fact that Andrew and I are really discussing these policies, which I think is fantastic, because if you look at the incumbent and her main competitor, as they say, Catherine Deves, what policies do they have for Warringah and what policies can they discuss and argue about? I actually met Catherine Deves down at Manly Ferry. She was handing out flyers and, you know, I got on really well with her, but when you look at her campaign material, it's just a little blurb about her. There's not one policy on there. Andrew and I uh, and the UAP and One Nation agree about a lot of things. There are some differences that we will argue back and forth, but at least we're having the conversation and the argument. We're not one-trick ponies and we have a, a, a plan uh, for Warringah 
and you know we want the best for Warringah. There's a lot of potential in this country, and we just haven't tapped in, into it because we have politicians with these sugar hit policies just to get them to the next election. We have no nation building long term policies ahead of us. One nation, uh, you know, are looking at these policies, whereas all we're hearing from Catherine Dees and Zali Stegel are issues not really connected to Warringah. You know, Catherine Dees talks about transgender in sport, which you know, is an important issue. Zali Stegel talks about renewables. Well, a lot of the majority of uh, our renewables are sourced from China. Now, 80% of solar panels, their components, uh, the manufacturing is sourced from China. Well, that makes us dependent on China for our energy. We're not, one nation wants to make us energy independent. She wants us to be dependent on China. Look what happened to Europe when they were dependent on Russia for their oil. And, you know, as soon as Russia invaded the Ukraine, suddenly, you know, Europe was vulnerable and, and had to, you know, go back to baseload power. Now, I'm not against renewables if they, if they can stand on their own two feet. If you want to put solar panels on your roof, that's fantastic. But we're sourcing these things from China and other countries as well. It's limiting our, um, our national strength and our sovereignty. And what happens in a decade's time when we need to replace these solar panels and, and wind turbines? They need to be replaced every decade. China's just gone into the Solomon Islands. What's to say what's going to happen in the next three months, let alone the next decade? Andrew, I just saw it um, kind of a, a closing comment um, leading up to the election. Um, what do you want people to know in Warringah that could impact um, you know, the choices that we make? I think I want people to really contemplate what they're going to get out of their vote. I think mm. if people have been in the kind of mindset just to vote along the party lines they've always voted, then Australia will probably continue kind of limping along in the same tra uh, trajectory on this direction until I think the unthinkable really could happen in Australia where we start defaulting on our actual debt. Uh, we have to start selling our national assets to foreigners and be we become more dependent effectively on government for things. I saw the government systematically shut down small business, medium enterprises in favour of big businesses and then give people cash handouts. And these were liberal governments in the areas that I was affected in New South Wales and in nationally. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I really, really hope um, people can see through what's been done, that there has been, I think, a genuine crippling of uh, our productive capacity as a country. There's been this increased reliance from people on their government. And I think the government um, really should, in my opinion, be given a mandate during this election that they have taken people's votes. Uh, I think they've taken them for granted for too long particularly the Liberal and Labor Party. Here it's not so easy in Moringa because we've obviously got a fairly new independent who's kind of running on a um, single issue, climate change. Uh, and I think, you know, it's hard for people to assess someone's candidacy given what's just happened in the last three years. Mm. But I really want people to think, what, what can they get out of the vote? What can they get out of this election? In my opinion, there are only, well, in my actual opinion, there's only one party that's really giving people any actual options. And that is to pay off the national debt, to secure your home, to ensure that you have, you know, bodily autonomy, you aren't forced to partake in any medical procedure you don't want to, that you can associate with who you want, you can speak to who you want, and you don't have to fear going to jail for not agreeing with government scientists. That is, there's only one party, in my opinion, that actually offers you that. Yeah, I just really hope people think about their vote seriously and not be put off by someone like Clive, who I actually happen to know personally. And I think unless he is the best actor in history, I would say that Clive is genuinely someone who loves the Australian country, like he loves Australia, and I honestly... I've heard him say probably 10 times, you know, people don't really care about that kind of stuff. They care about having a home. They care about having, you know, a family and they care about having 
a job. And if we can give Australians those things, they'd be really, really happy. And I think from my impression of him, he is a person who truly does care about Australians and he wants people to actually be able to enjoy the Australian dream. But, um, you know, I would hate for someone to think they're not going to vote for a party that's actually offering them something because of an individual who's running for a Senate spot in Queensland. I just think that would be a real travesty to put the same people who have put us in this position back into power. So I just hope that people aren't, you know, bewitched by the media. You know, I'm, I love these polls, you know, two party preferred and it's like 58%. So it's 42% of people that don't want either of them anywhere near the place. You've got PM, preferred PM, and they're like getting what, 57% or something. It's insane. 43% of people don't want either of them running the country and they actually have a choice. And they, they keep saying that weak, you know, governments are weak if they're not a um, majority power. That is nonsense. That is absolutely nonsense. We are talking before about passing a Bill of Rights. What a Bill of Rights, really, when people talk about it, they talk about pretty much the American Bill of Rights, which was the first in the world, effectively. It means that Congress can pass, this is America, obviously, can make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting its free exercise. It protects freedom of speech, the press, assembly, and the right to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And effectively, we're talking about that in Australia. I think the New Zealand Bill of Rights goes a lot further in terms of kind of stating a number of recognised human rights. And I would think at least along that kind of New Zealand approach where there is an actual protection of you know, freedom of the press, the ability for us to talk without fear of sanction from government, certainly imprisonment. Um, guys, thank you so much. I appreciate how much time it takes to come and do these things out of... Uh... You know, at a time where you're, you're hitting the ground running and um, doing the best you can to get out there to as many people as you can. So we really appreciate you taking this time. Yeah. It's been fun, actually. And I look forward, I'm sure we'll see you guys out and about. This was Inside Ringa talking to Andrew Robertson from United Australia Party and Stephen Tripp from One Nation. Next week, we'll be talking to more candidates, including David Nickelbrough from Labor and Chris Planville from The Greens. Until next time, make sure to subscribe to hear future podcasts.